Let us take up and read our Bibles together at Hebrews chapter 3. We read the first part this morning in connection with a sermon on the first six verses. Let's read that again to get the context, but the sermon will draw attention to the second part of Hebrews 3, beginning of verse 7 to the end, verse 16. But here, the word of God at verse 1, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And then in light of that, we read verse 7 and following our text, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Thus far we read, This grim word, this threat that is set forth as an example to us to hear, lest we ourselves follow Israel in its unbelief and do not enter the rest of God. Beloved, the importance of Jesus has been emphasized Hitherto in Hebrews, and the importance of Jesus continues to be emphasized also in these warnings that are hurled toward the readers and towards us in the case that we be found not believing. The importance of Jesus Christ is that he is the way to the Father. The importance of believing in Jesus Christ is that If we believe in Jesus Christ, and as we do, then we have access to the Father. 
The importance of believing in Jesus Christ is that if we do not believe in Jesus Christ, there is only the prospect of our not entering into the rest of the gospel, even the eternal life with God. The text brings out Israel as an example to us. We are to hear the example that is in the Old Testament and that is written for our edification as we rise up from the table because there was a real danger to Israel and they succumbed to the danger of rebelling against God. They had an evil heart of unbelief and did not obey nor believe. And they, who were the people of the promise, therefore forfeited their right to be the people of God this whole generation, and they perished in the wilderness. Today, we consider these things in a world which is not considering God or the living God, as he's called in our text, departure from whom is to the peril of souls. We live in a church world which is playing light and fanciful with the gospel and even promoting a kind of pluralism and a teaching that there are many ways to heaven. Jesus is just one way, and another way, and another, and another are provided for those who don't really care for Jesus. Beloved, we confess Jesus here. Israel confessed their God as they were being led out of the wilderness. They began well. They even sang on the shore of the parted Red Sea. The point of the text is that we not only begin, but that we proceed and that we hold steadfast to the end, to the end of our life, to the end of time, to the end when Jesus will come again. You will note the ending Word of our text this morning was, but as Christ is a son, verse 6, over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. And then there's verse 14 of our text, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Beloved, what shall be what we are doing as a result of hearing this word. What shall be our way of looking at things, our resolution, we who have begun to confess Christ, shall we continue to the end? Shall we? Will we? I fear that for some of us, there's reason to doubt. There's reason to fear. We walk halfway in and halfway out of Christianity. We are not so consistent, near consistent as we ought to be. And these threats come to these people. But we need to remember these warnings about hardening our hearts, as Israel did, they come to all of us. Beloved, let us take inventory of our souls tonight. 
Let us be those who pray to God to search us, to try us and see if there be any wicked way, any evil heart of unbelief, and to rid us of that and to lead us to repentance. A word, a sobering word is ours as we rise up from the table and would have the Holy Spirit apply truth to us that we might be new men and new women. And those creatures who say, our God is the author and the finisher of our faith. And we've begun, and by grace we shall continue all the way to the end. Exhorted to believe to the end is the theme of my sermon. We want to consider that there was a people led by sin to depart from the holy God. Second, that there is a people led by faith to draw near to the loving God. And finally, that this people is led to persevere by hearing the speaking God. The text here speaks rather in detail about the process of departure. There's a people of whom we must beware lest we follow their example, in verse 12 tells us, their example is that they had an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This departure is described in uh, the, ver- the quote of Psalm 95, which is made twice in this te- context here. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me and so on. And then later on, this is described and we are warned with regard to sin, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's words here that describe a process, a method of the devil of deceiving us and leading us into hardening and into judgment. Sin is said here to be the deceitfulness of sin. This is where it all begins. There's a deceitfulness of sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is shaking the fist at God. Sin is denying the word. As at the beginning, Adam and Eve denied the word that God was serious in his commandment, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And as they considered these things and they did not consider serious enough the threat and the day that you eat of it, you shall die. They were sinning already then. And then when they took, even then Adam, they sinned in word, not only in thought, but in deed. That's sin. And sin, the nature of it is that it deceives. This is how the devil tricks us that deceiver from the beginning, that Satan, that adversary of God, would get at God if he could get at God's people and prove them to be hypocrites and God to be fake and powerless in his saving his own. Satan is a deceiver. Sin is a deceiver. It's deceptive, promising the world and not being able to deliver. Sin, in fact might promise liberty, might promise liberty to young people and to us older people. Liberty, freedom, freedom from moms and dads' precepts, 
freedom from the church's commandments and the order of worship and so on. But what sin promises, freedom, ends up being a promise of bondage. Because outside of the law of God is not freedom, but is bondage. Bondage to our own opinions or others. Bondage to the flesh. Bondage you can see even when people say they're free to do whatever they want with things. What happens is, when they think they're free to do whatever they want with things, the things take over and they control a person, whether it's drink, whether it's meat and food and so on, or whether it's other things and people. It controls people. It becomes their Lord, and this Lord is a wicked tyrant. Sin may promise light, knowledge, You'll have extra knowledge, outside-of-the-box sort of knowledge for you creative people among, your, uh, among us. But the fact is, sin leads to the lie and not true knowledge at all. Sin promises indeed the world, but the world is nothing. And having the world is nothing, as Jesus says, if you lose your own soul in the process of gaining all the riches of the world, sin promises Good things, but does not deliver anything good, but everything evil. Mixed with hardness of heart, and the heart which in each of us is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, and who can know it? Sin, its deceptive power is very powerful indeed. The sin that comes dangling on a hook with its temptations and promises is met by us, or rather fishy and suspicious in our Christianity as far as our natural tendency is, and we go for the bait. Or sin may come as a fire, and it finds in us dry tinder. And so the combination is scary and dangerous, and all it takes is the devil to prompt us, and there we're all aflame. So there's this sin And there's this evil heart of unbelief that is set forth for us as an example in the wilderness that happened to Israel. And there was a hardening as a result of this, a hardening. That is, people saying, you know, I don't really want to obey the truth, and I'll just become deaf to what the Word of God says, and I'll listen over here, because this person's voice is is more pleasing and this person's promises are more to my liking and so on and these person's confinements there are well there are none and the sky's the limit to what I can do and what I can be in this newfound freedom and promises and this hardening goes on you don't want to hear this you turn a deaf ear to truth and you turn ready ears to what God Uh, forbids even the words of the devil, and this hardening is exaggerated when to the unbelief is added the deed of disobedience. You sow things when you walk in unbelief, when you turn on the internet site, when you say things you should not, when you associate with people you should not, when you have an attitude that resists love and 
the overtures of the Holy Spirit against whom you're grieving and you just want your own way, this sows further stubbornness and a further pattern which is deadly. This was a reality in Israel. And this is set forth for us, even as Moses was the good example that we might want to follow, though Christ is far more glorious, Israel is set forth as a bad example here. This is striking, for these are the people of God. They're the people led out of Egypt, led out of the bondage of Egypt, led out of the tyranny of Pharaoh, led out of this terrible place. And they're the ones who are set forth as an example to us of what it is to harden your hearts, not hear his voice, and to test God over and over and not enter into the promised land because of it. What's striking is Israel had so many benefits. The Apostle Paul speaks of these benefits of the Jews per se, the outward blessings. He speaks of his countrymen in Romans 9, according to the flesh, in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the worship, all that outlined in Leviticus and so on. And the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who was over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He had much to say about their outward advantages. But this people, time and again, rebelled. And the first time, when they became, when they became evident they were this rebellious people, is in the wilderness. And the 40 years of wandering is, is cited here in Hebrews twice. But that 40 years of wandering is recorded in the, the book of Exodus and Numbers and so on. But it's brought to the attention of the people of God in the psalmist day in Psalm 95, who tells the people of God then, hundreds and hundreds of years after Israel in the wilderness, that you're the same way. Harden not your hearts. Don't be like your fathers. And now, to this book, or in this book of Hebrews, to Hebrew Christians, the writer is saying the same thing. Hebrew Christians who are in danger of departing from the living God. What's striking, though we cannot be dogmatic about this, but it's certainly striking, it may be that the time that Hebrews is written is about 40 years after Jesus Christ was rejected of the Jews and just before the destruction of Jerusalem. Another 40-year period. And just before which there's going to be this rejection of God, this people of God, called the people of God, the Jews, will not enter the promised land. They haven't changed a whit, and their sin seen in the rejection of Jesus Christ in the flesh is all the more severe and the hardening is all the more a judgment of God. Oh, beloved, this is written for us. There's a reality in the church today that we follow the process of a deceitfulness of sin combined with our evil heart of unbelief. We harden ourselves to it. 
And as a congregation, as a denomination, federation, as part of whatever alliance it is that churches make, we depart from the living God. And this, I say, is true. It applies today because the apostle or whoever wrote Hebrews is applying it to today. He's speaking to brethren. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. This is the word of God. The New Testament church has the gospel light far more than Israel did in its light of the Old Testament. We have the ordinances, the preaching of the gospel. We've been led over the centuries by the Holy Spirit as a church to confess the truth, all the truth, the whole counsel of God, and this is recorded in our confessions, Reformed and Presbyterian, Nicene Creed and Creed of Chalcedon, and all of these stalwart confessions of the church. And the warning comes to us, watch out. Watch out. We are indeed the house of Christ. This was, in fact, the point that was brought out at the inauguration sermon at our installation. We are the pillar and ground of truth, the house of the living God in Christ Jesus, who's a son over his own house. And we are this. We're told in this word, in this exhortation, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, if, and therefore as the Holy Spirit says to us today, today, if you, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in that day of trial in the wilderness. When Israel complained about lack of bread and they received manna and after a while we complained about that, when they hankered after Egypt, when they didn't like the leadership of Moses, take that to heart. When you don't really like the gospel anymore and just the gospel, when you complain about the leadership of the church, they're just men. And then... When you harden yourself and you say, we just, enough of it, we just want the world. This is the church today. It's striking that the word that's used here for departing from the living God in verse 12, and we're warned against that. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. That same word is used in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, when the Spirit says expressly that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The departure. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the departure is called the apostasy, the falling away of the church that once held to the truth but now wants something else or in addition to the truth. Once a different message and a different method, once a different victory, once a different and more palatable gospel so that the call to repent is not heard and the egos of the people are stroked.
We have an example here. It's no small matter. It's the most important matter in the world. The most important matter in the world is being preached here tonight. And it's this. Concerns, what are you going to do with the word of God? You confess it. What are you going to do? More to the point, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who is he to you? Have you considered him and esteemed him highly? Do you still? Will you still? Or will you harden your heart and be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? Little by little, the world creeps in and you like it. This is a danger to God's people. And not just to Israel, but to us. Otherwise, this is just idle. And we might say, once saved, always saved. In fact, this is a difficult concept here. I will not kid you. I met the difficulty face to face and head on in dealing with the text and not wanting to gloss over things. It's a danger. We can speak of broad evangelicalism and churches that go the way of, well, all of Israel and of the some that will depart in the latter times and kind of like a theoretical thing, but the danger is real to us. The threat is real with regard to us. What do I mean by that? Well, sin is real, isn't it? Don't you know that sin is a great threat to you? Sin is. And the deceitfulness of sin doesn't... When you find yourself being tricked by sin and then ashamed when you sin, whether it's a word, a deed, a thought, I hope you do, beloved. I hope you feel ashamed of sin. comes a point, I, I know, when you're so hard and you're not ashamed anymore. You've been in this habit so often and so long, and you're just kind of hardened to it. It's only once you repent and you really mean it, you find that's a shameful thing I've been doing. Terrible thing. Sin is real. Deceitfulness of sin is real and hardening is too, for us, get hardened. Ministers can become hard, and elders, and deacons, and, and parents, and wives, and husbands, and all we think about is to resolve problems as a, a good shouting match, or to resolve problems, we just run away and don't deal with them. 
Or don't preach about them. Preach something else. If you get hard, hard. Temptation is real. That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. As often as we pray for daily bread, that's every day. We pray, lead us not to temptation. It's real. It's real. And now here's where we don't want to go. And here's where we find the gospel. Many err here. And they say the danger's real. The call to us is do not harden your hearts. And they note the if clauses that are here and in abundance in the book of Hebrews. If you hold fast, your hope firm to the end. If you hold the beginning of your confidence steadfast to the end, that implies they say that, well, it is possible that the, the saved can fall away. And I read commentators and I download some off the internet. I don't know what I'm going to get. Some strange stuff out there. But I can smell an Arminian uh, an internet away and a Roman Catholic, and a Mormon. And when they start saying to me that there's a falling away of the saved, I say, no, no, that can't be taught here. Somehow we have to teach the danger that is real and that we know in light of the truth that if you are a saved child of God, if you are elect and given true faith, you will never fall away. Never. And if you say, well, here's one text that seems to imply that you'll fall away, you show them another one. And then they're met with a consistency in the veracity of the Word of God, and that's something you don't want to deny. The Word of God that says in John 10, for example, the shepherd speaking, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And... I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Beloved, there's the preservation, the perseverance of the saints, because it's the preservation and the perseverance of God. The love of God. And I speak forcefully here because the force to compromise truth for the sake of warning people and making people so afraid that they doubt is strong and is prevalent in many a doubting, reformed congregation. So this cannot mean this danger that it is such a danger that there's a danger of the sade falling away that leads to our holding as normative doubt. Because after all, you never know. Reading one commentator, seemed to be faithful, has been used of many or by many to understand the doctrines of grace and all I could say about this is this text teaches that I can be sure now, but I can only hope vainly that I'll be saved in the end. In fact, it would be dangerous to say that I will persist steadfast to the end. I'm not sure 
That's why I'm going to work harder. This is part of the problem of this. This is maybe the central part of the problem. What happens is, if we interpret the if statements, if you do this and you hold fast, then you're going to hold to the end and so on, and it's only then, and you make this something dependent on you, you have a gospel of works, which is no gospel. You have a grace which needs works to confirm it. You have a justification which some evangelical, very popular people hold, which indeed applies at the first, but at the end of time, you are justified after all, not just by faith, but by the works that you do to persevere in the faith. This is worse than hogwash. It's from the devil. It's grace or not. It's God who saves, or we do, and we're lost. So what do we say here? I try to impress upon you that's a great danger. We must today hear this word. We must hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. We must hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What does that mean? Well, beloved, what that means is we need Jesus. And that's where these words lead us. They're designed to. And so we're led in the midst of the danger, which is real, in the threats that are real to Jesus. We're led outside of ourselves, you hear this? To believe in another. We're led to stop clinging to this world and its hopes, to stop investing in different stocks and so on as those who, who hedge their bets and place our confidence entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call. If you heard Jesus this morning, if you partook of him in the, in the supper, haven't you been led there? If you're hearing Jesus speak to you now and exhort as a shepherd from heaven through an under-shepherd, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Cast your burdens upon me. If you hear him say, my death is the death that I give. I lay down my life for, for sinners. Now you trust in me. You hear that? You're being led to Jesus and to the God who's the living God and the holy God of love. And that's what all of this wilderness wandering is for. It was in the Old Testament. So through the manna and through Moses and the Shekinah glory and all the ways that God was providing they'd be led to Jesus, so it is with the gospel of the New Testament. You're led to Jesus. And through the threatenings and the warnings, don't harden your hearts 
The young people, the older people, the middle-aged are, are warned, don't get off the tracks. You began well. You confessed your faith. You were good children of your parents. Now be faithful children of God. By loving Jesus, so is your life. And to die is gain. That's how we're led to persevere. That's the beginning of it. And my final point. I have three subpoints in this led to persevere by hearing the speaking God. And they all start with H. Have to do with these three things hearing, holding, and being holy. Hear. Hear God. We believe, wonderful. We continue to believe by continuing to hear. This is emphasized in the text. Hear. The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the will and the rebellion. The Holy Spirit is said to be the author of Psalm 95, which is quoted here. Isn't that striking? A proof for the divinity and divine authorship of the Bible. If you would hear God in the Bible, speaking to you, this is how you will persevere. Because faith comes by hearing the voice of God. So you read the Bible. You speak the Bible. You hear the preaching of the Word of God. Hear it. Hear it. Today, twice that's quoted, that part of Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, verse 15, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then the question is, for who having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And so on. The calling is to hear and to be a real hearer, a believer of the Word of God. Today, isn't that amazing? As Joshua said when they were taking the land today, enter in. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, today we will serve the Lord. You see, you walk out the door, you may drop over. You go to sleep, you may not wake up. You think about tomorrow and you think about putting off things or, or even doing things, that tomorrow may never come. You are not creatures, beloved, who know the end from the beginning or the end from anything. God knows these things. Tomorrow's his day, as well as today and yesterday. Today's yours. 
It's a gift. What are you going to do with today and your talents today? Your whole soul today, right now. In evil days, the Bible says, hear. Hear the word, hear the preaching. Attend to the means of grace. There's a word in the sacrament, you know. The word of Jesus' presence, a sacramental word. And then note, we're called to do some of the speaking. Verse 13, beware or exhort one another daily while it's called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. A little bit on that. Exhorting here is encouraging, rebuking, admonishing, lifting one another up, redirecting people, whatever it is. It's speaking things that are edifying. That's what exhorting is. And the brethren, called holy brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, are called to do this. Brethren, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart, but also beware of, for the other's sake, exhort one another. And here's the importance of church. Local congregations and not flitting about between other congregations or just leaning over on the couch and turning on another internet channel. The importance of being with one another and gathering and assembling together, as Hebrews 10 will tell us in verse 25, has to do with what we do when we get to one another. Talk. Not just frivolously, but with a view to being there for this brother who may be tripping up, messing up, or may be a help to us and we need to hear from him. Whatever it is, we are family. We are of his own house. And you talk. And if you have problems, you exhort one another to work out the problems. And often the elders are called to do just that. People can't work out their problems because they themselves are problems. They don't have the spiritual maturity and vitality to deal with things in light of the cross. That's pathetic. It's sad. Since we say we are a people of the cross. Hear God in the church, in his word, And then hold. Verse 14, if we have become partakers of Christ, we have, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. It means something like this, beloved. We must hold on to not only a confession, but the truth of it. The very foundation of our confidence, steadfast to the end. What's the foundation of our confidence? Well, it's Christ, of course. Christ our all. Here's the problem with us who are led by the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of our own heart and the wiles of the devil. By and by, we begin well. Our confidence wanes in just Christ and we try to be thinking that we can add to something We can merit something with God or we don't need the merits of Christ so much so that pretty soon Christ becomes less in our lives and we become more. 
The exact opposite, as it should be, Christ should become more and we should become less. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. We thought when we first confessed our faith, we were just beggars and we begged God to show mercy. And now we think we're rather rich and we are spiritually mature and we're here to teach others and we don't need that Jesus and praying and crying like we did at the first, we've rather arrived. And we're told here, hold the beginning, the very foundation, the arche, in the beginning was God, and the word was with God, same word, of our confidence steadfast to the end. Hold on Christ, like you did at the first, when he meant something to you. And now, since the world is meaning something to you and even more to you than Christ, hold on to him again. Let go of everything else and hold on to Jesus and be confident in him steadfast to the end. And this would be, of course, as we consider him, back to the first exhortation of the first six verses, we have confidence, we are his if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing and the hope firm to the end. You hold on, confident. The catechism reminds us in Lord's Day 7, faith is confidence, not doubt, confidence. In the midst of threats, confidence. Holy and also happy, rejoicing, the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Well, beloved, <clears throat> one final thing, and that's holiness. The word for departing from the living God is a word that's used in an opposite way in 2 Timothy 1, verse 19. Nevertheless, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal kind of like a sacrament. The Lord knows those who are his. That's the foundation of the house. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You see? When people depart from the living God, they depart from righteousness. When people draw near to the living God, they depart from iniquity. And beloved congregation, as we rise up from the holy table of the Lord, shall we not be holy and draw near to the living God and depart from iniquity? After all, we name the name of Jesus here. May we do that not only in name, but in deed and in sincerity. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ at Sovereign Grace Church, be faithful to the end. I exhort you in the name of God, exhort one another, be steadfast, press on. Let not the truth of the great salvation slip by you or you by it. Hold on to Christ and to one another in the wonderful 
communion we have as the house of God. I love you. God loves you. And God is faithful who will see you to the end. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray to believe to the end, to be holding on to Jesus to the end. Lord, in this wilderness, we are besieged on every side and from within there's these motions of death. The temptations are real, the tendencies to go after what is not good for our souls but bad. God bless us. Confirm us in our faith. Give us a great week as we consider, meditate upon the things of the gospel word, the power of God unto salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.